chapter 4, the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, and we've come to this final section of chapter 4, and Paul shifts gears from talking about the life that we're called to live to addressing himself to some interesting subjects such as resurrection, uh, specifically the rapture of the church, and the dealing with the fact that we lose loved ones, that, you know, the, the real purpose of this passage was to address the sense of, of loss and devastation that happens when someone who we love dies. And so Paul wants to address that in a way that we would find comforting. But in the process, of the, in these few verses, we see a lot of concepts that have become controversial and difficult, certainly. And so um, let's just read through these verses, beginning with verse 13. And he starts by saying, But I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. There was an area of information whereby the Thessalonians were lacking. And as a result of what they didn't know, Paul addresses them, probably from things that, that uh, had been shared with him from what was going on in Thessalonica. And, and he said, I, I don't want you to be ignorant. Now, that wasn't a slam on them. We would tend to use the term ignorant as a pejorative term. But he was just saying, there are some things that you don't know that I, I want you to know. I want you to, to understand this a little better. And the reason why he wanted them to know it is because as time was going on, some of them were dying. And as someone would die, it would cause them to be really distraught. And he didn't say you shouldn't sorrow when you lose someone, but he said you shouldn't be sorrowing in the same way, the same as those who don't have hope. Your attitude toward it should be different. And then he goes into a discussion that kind of fills them in on some of the reasons why. Now, we see in this passage the reference to the return of Christ to receive, take them to himself. And we call this the rapture of the church. Now, there are a lot of people who don't even believe that there is a rapture. The idea of Christians being caught up in the air is something that they reject because it doesn't fit with the rest of their theology. And they will even say, and I've had this happen many times, where someone says, oh, the rapture, the rapture. The, rap the word rapture isn't even used in the Bible. 
And I guess that's sort of true, but there are a whole lot of English words that aren't used in the Bible, and yet the, like Trinity, for instance, and yet the truth is clearly taught in the scriptures. The term rapture came from the word in verse 17, where it says, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. The word there for caught up or snatched up or taken away is a Greek word harpazo. So if you don't like the word rapture, you can say we're going to be harpazoed someday. <laughs> the word rapture just came from the Latin translation of that word, which is rapturo, and thus it came to be referred to, transliterated as rapture. But you have to understand one thing that everyone in the first century church agreed on, and that is Jesus is coming back for us. Jesus is coming back, and they believed it would be soon. They couldn't conceive of why it would take a long time. But what we call the imminent return of Christ, the, return, the fact that he could come back at any point, was something that clearly was their conviction. And this was a part of the problem here in Thessalonica, is that it's like, oh, we're looking for Jesus to come back, and he hasn't come back, and now some people are dying, and they're going to miss his coming back. And so that's why he addressed it here. The whole notion of him coming back, Jesus clearly taught. Um, over in John 14, the first six verses, he has that great conversation with his disciples where he's talking to them about the fact that he was going to die, and he was getting them ready for that. And he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And then he goes on, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. And Jesus said, well, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. If you know me, you know the way, don't worry. Um, but there was that promise. And then you remember in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus ascended into heaven. He went floating up in the sky, and the angels came and said, what are you guys looking at? This same Jesus who you're seeing ascending out of your sight is going to descend in the same way. So they had that promise, and, and really most of them thought it would happen really quick. Thought, you know, a day here, a day there, and he'll be back. Jesus said, I'll be right back, and so that's what they were expecting. Um, they had a part of the problem is they didn't understand that the heart of God was bigger than their heart. And that's where Peter, over in 2 Peter in the last chapter, he talks about, he said, there are some people who are scoffing and saying, oh, Jesus isn't coming back. If he was coming back, he would have come back by now. He's flaking, he's never coming back. And Peter said, you don't understand, see, with, with God, one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like a day. So he said, in God's time, when he says, I'll be right back, it could be a few thousand years, and that's still, to him, just like a few days. But he said, you gotta understand this, God is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. He said, God isn't slacking off, but he is patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
And so Peter said, the reason why it's taken so long is because God's love extends to people who haven't as yet heard. And so the delay was because of God's patience. So that's why here we still are, still, you know, admonished in Scripture to expect his return. We saw as Eddie quoted in his prayer, Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We studied that passage just this last Wednesday night in the book of Titus. Um, We are still to have that expectation. But here they are dealing with the fact that a lot of people deal with. There are people now who got saved, you know, back in the 70s or the 80s, and they were told, man, Jesus could come back at any time, and we expect him. And he didn't come back as soon as many of us thought. And yet, we are still called to wait for him, to expect him, to know that he could come at any time. But there are complications that come in to that, and Paul's dealing with some of those complications. Okay, how do we deal with it when we lose somebody and the Lord hasn't returned like we would expect? Now, the whole question of the Lord's return becomes difficult in some ways because so many of the Old Testament prophecies and passages that refer to the coming of Messiah are referring to that time when he comes to set up his kingdom on the earth and to judge the earth. And typically and traditionally, we would refer to that as the second coming of Christ. And it's, we believe, a different event than what he's talking about here. Um, Jesus is going to come back, set down his feet on the Mount of Olives. It will split, and he will put an end to all warfare as he defeats the armies of the Antichrist and sets up his kingdom. But people get confused partly because of that. But what I want you to notice is this event when the Lord himself, as he says, descends from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Now, linguistically, these aren't necessarily three individual things or things three things that happen sequentially. That's not implied by the text. Um, this could just be a huge noise. That's, it's a voice... It's an archangel, it's, it's a trumpet. It could be all those things happening at once, or it could be a sound that's indescribable that's kind of described that way. But this huge thing happens, and the dead in Christ rise. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we'll always be with the Lord a fantastic sort of event, and one that's almost hard to imagine. A couple of things. Notice that he, he, he talks about this event, and it's not going to be a subtle one. It doesn't seem like this is just going to happen like it does in a lot of the movies, and all, all of a sudden everyone's just gone. Oh, what happened? I don't know. Now, you're not going to be able to miss this when it happens. Now, I believe this is the same basic event that's described in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in in the section where Paul talks about the resurrection. And then he, he says, 
towards the end of the chapter, he said, like verse 51, he starts into it, and, and he says, I'm going to show you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. When I was a kid, they had that on a plaque in the church nursery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Um, but he says, we'll be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. And then he says, this mortal must put on immortality. And so then will be the, the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. Now, so what he says there is, there's this trumpet, there's this transformation. Those of us who are still alive when Jesus returns will be transformed. Those who have died are raised and we, then the ultimate victory over death occurs. So it's talking about the same basic event, clearly. Now people will go, well, it says the last trumpet, so now let's go over to Revelation and see what's the last trumpet we can find. But you can't do biblical interpretation that way because they use trumpets a lot, and for them that just means a signal. That was a very common thing. And... When Paul's writing here in 1 Thessalonians 4, Revelation wasn't even written until another 40 years later or something like that. So don't get too far ahead trying to figure out exactly when this is. There's still a mystery to it. There are still some things we don't know. We should expect it to be confusing when Jesus, when asked about when all this stuff was going to happen, he said, look, I don't even know. Now, he may know now, but he didn't know then, and he said that, and, and he said, no one knows the day or the hour. So any kind of speculation is sort of meaningless. We want to stick with what he is saying right here. But obviously, their concern was, we've been waiting for Jesus to come back, and some people have died, and they missed it. There are some people who just live with their hearts set on, oh, I want to see Jesus come back. And... You know, Pastor Chuck is one of those people who, he's 82, and he still, with all his heart, believes that he's not going to die, that he's going to see Jesus come in the clouds and take him. Now, for some of you, you might go, come on, Chuck, a couple strokes, you're 82, uh, you, might, you might not see it. But this is the way that people in the early church lived their lives always believing he can come at any time. And I believe in the imminent return of Christ. And, and I think that has a, an incredible effect on how you live your life. If you know that he could return at any time, what a transformation that does. How, how piddly and how flimsy do the things of this earth appear when we understand that he could appear at any time. It'll change the way that you live, certainly. But so now he's addressing that and going, I know you're feeling bummed because your friends missed the rapture. But he said, don't feel bad. I mean, yeah, you mourn because you lost them, but don't mourn for them. Because as he says, if we believe, verse 14, that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And by the way, I should make this clear. It's using sleep as a metaphor for death. And that's very common in the, in the New Testament. Remember when 
Jesus was going to heal somebody, and he said they were just asleep, and they go, well, then just wake them up. And he goes, no, I mean dead. I'm just saying sleep because that's a metaphor. Um, There are some people who take this, and they believe that when we die, we go to sleep. We just pass out, and we're not aware of anything, and we're waiting for the resurrection in what is called soul sleep. Now, I don't, I don't believe that. I have a problem with that, namely because, among other things, scriptures tell us over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So I believe when, just like the thief on the cross, when he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, and Jesus said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. I believe that when I take my last breath on earth, My next gasp will be in the presence of God. And Paul clearly believed that. If you read that passage in 2 Corinthians 5, you can see that. In fact, turn over there for a moment because there's another point I want to bring up from that. 2 Corinthians 5. Beginning with verse 1. Paul says, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, this tabernacle, this body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this, this body we have, we groan. The older you get, the more you groan. (laughs) Earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. He goes, man, when you're in this body, you're just going... I wish I could get my new body. I wish I could get my heavenly body. And he said, if indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. In other words, I'm not looking just to get out of my body and not have a body. Verse 4, we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, disembodied, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. And then he goes on to talk about we're walking by faith, not by sight, and we're confident in verse 8, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. In other words, when we leave this body, we go to be with him. But the other thing he seems to be saying there in 2 Corinthians 5 is that I don't want to get out of this body and be without a body but I'm looking to get out of this body and into another body. And I think that becomes important when we're trying to figure out what happens to our loved ones who die, who are Christians. What's going to happen to us if we don't see the the coming of Christ personally from here? Uh, What's it going to be like? And it's not that we, I believe, it's not that we go to heaven and we're like disembodied spirits. Now, there are some people who believe that we would just go and we'll exist like little Casper, the friendly Christians, until, until the resurrection comes when we get our new bodies. Um, but 2 Corinthians 5, to me, seems to indicate that that's not the case. Um, we also know that soul sleep isn't right. You don't just go to sleep, and then a few thousand years later, you wake up in heaven. Now, for some of you a nice long nap might sound really good, um, especially those of you mothers who take care of little children. But, you know, I don't, uh, that doesn't seem to be what he's saying. If you read over in Philippians chapter 1, 
Um, Paul talks about, man, I'm really torn because I really want to be here with you guys to help you. But if I die, I go to be with him and that's way better. And so he said, I'm really kind of torn. I guess I'm more needed here than I am in heaven. So therefore, I'll, I'll stay with you guys for a while. But if Paul thought he was just going to go to sleep, he would say, he would say well, boy, I'm really torn because I could be here with you or I could be nowhere. No, he goes, no, I can either be with you or I can be with Jesus. And even here in, in 1 Thessalonians, the passage says, those who are in Christ, they sleep in Jesus. They're dead, but they're with Jesus. And so I think this passage lays out for us certainly the idea that that when we die, we're with Jesus and we're going to come back with him. Now, the other thing that he lays out here is those people are not at all at a disadvantage. They don't need to feel like if they miss the rapture that they missed anything. And this introduces the whole notion that, well, some of us aren't going to last that long. And certainly there's no reason to hang on to life, put me on life support, or freeze me in one of these chambers because I really want to see the rapture. Now, you'll either see the rapture as you're going up, or you'll see the rapture from the sky as you are with Jesus and you're already with him. But again, the eminency, certainly. Paul expected to see it. Here he says, we who are alive and remain. Paul was an older man at this point under a lot of persecution, going through tough times. And yet, he said, those of us who are still here, and in the same way that in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, when he says, we will not all die. We'll not all sleep, but we'll all be changed. We'll be transformed. So a, a glorious revelation and a tie-in with people who died before, like, hey, they are going to be there too. In fact, he says, they're going to be there first. They're going to be there before. Because as he says, um, those who, we who, in verse 15, this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. In other words, by living long enough to see the rapture, you have no advantage. And you're not getting something ahead of somebody else. And this would certainly, you know, put to rest the idea that, well, some of the people are in purgatory, some of the people have to go through a time of sleep, some of the... If that was the case, then you do have an advantage to not die and to make it to the rapture. But he's saying, no, they, you don't have an advantage over those people. And then as he describes this amazing event... He says, and the dead in Christ, in the end of verse 16, will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be snatched up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So you have this scenario. Okay, we come to a certain point in history, and we don't know when that point is. But the Lord is saying, I'm wrapping things up. And so... He takes the people who are here on the earth and they're actually transformed. Their bodies are metamorphosed 
instantly in the twinkling of an eye, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and we are caught up to heaven, caught up to be with Jesus. Now when we are caught up, it turns out the people who we have said goodbye to here on the earth are already there waiting for us. They are resurrected, and we join with them to forever be together. And it's a glorious reunion. And frankly, the greatest thing about the rapture is not going to be having a bird's eye view of the earth. It's going to be seeing the people who we love, who we miss. Now, it does say that the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. And so there's some difficulty in understanding the resurrection. The resurrection is when our bodies are transformed. And for people who make it to the rapture, their bodies are going to be transformed in the twinkling of an eye instantly. But the question is, how about those people who die and are dead in Christ? People who are with him. How It seems like they will be resurrected at the time of this harpazo, at the time of this rapture. So how do you explain that in light of what we already saw in 2 Corinthians, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? Now, there are several ways to understand this that are all orthodox, and I'll, I'll let you know kind of what they are. There are some people who believe that, I guess, if we go to be with the Lord, but we don't get our body until later, then we must... Um, just be disembodied spirits. We must just be ghosts floating around in heaven. And it's legitimate for somebody to think that, especially if you don't read 2 Corinthians 5. But as I said, to me, 2 Corinthians 5 would tend to say, at least Paul's expectation was, I'm not expecting to just get out of this body. I'm expecting to get out of this body and into another one. And so, and it, and it really would seem that we aren't, although the real us is spirit and soul, yet we need a body to reflect and to depict that. So the idea of us being disembodied spirits, although, again, this week and looking at a lot of commentaries, there are a lot of good commentators who, who assume that. And the reason they assume it is because the Bible just doesn't say anything different. Another possibility, and it's perhaps the majority view among among Bible-believing Christians, is that we must get an intermediate body so that if we die, we're given a temporary body as a holding tank for our soul and spirit. And then when the trumpet sounds, the rapture happens, then we get our new bodies come flying up to us at the same time as the rapture. Now, that's a legitimate possibility because it, it takes care of the whole disembodied spirits thing. You don't have that, and yet it takes care of the fact that it looks like the resurrection happens at the time of the tribulation. You still with me? Okay, but the problem is the Bible doesn't say anything about an intermediate body. And so you always hate, it's what in, in logic we call an ad hoc hypothesis, where you like just make something up in order to try to make sense, but it's not something that was there in the, in the information, the data that you have. So I'm, I'm a little hesitant on that. Now, Pastor Chuck has a, another view that differs somewhat from, from what a lot of people have. And in Chuck's view, he believes that the resurrection is progressive. That is, 
if I die today, my resurrection is today, and I get my resurrection body today, and I go to be with the Lord. If you die tomorrow, your resurrection is tomorrow. That that's been happening since Jesus as the first fruits, and progressively throughout history, resurrection is taking place. Now that view has a lot of merit. You don't end up with disembodied spirits, and you don't end up with a hypothesized uh, intermediate body. Um, the difficulty with that view is that it seems like here he is saying, and in, in 1 Corinthians 15 passage as well, that the dead rise, then we are raptured and we're all joined together. Now, I should say here that where it says the dead in Christ will rise first, um, that word first doesn't designate chronological time necessarily. The word, the Greek word is proton, and it, it means that you're in a position of superiority. You came in first. Um, and, and so it's kind of like, think of our word prototype. It's a type, and a type means a stamped out image of something, uh, for those of you that don't remember typewriters. And, and proton, or protos is the noun form of it, the preeminent type. And so when something's a prototype, we're saying, hey, this is something that's laid down to show you what's coming in the future. And so, especially given the fact that there was a concern here about the, these people missing out, it, it very well could be, and the way Pastor Chuck teaches it, is that, no, they are the first ones. They rise prior to you. And so it's not saying they all rise at once. It's saying that they rise prior to, or they have an advantage, in a sense, over those who make it to the rapture. And that's a, a, a legitimate position, has a, a whole lot of good to say for it. There are other twists in terms of exactly how to understand this. One view that kind of fascinates me, but it gets way out there, um, is the idea that, wait, when we leave here and we go to heaven, aren't we passing from time into eternity? And we believe that that's so, that heaven will be a state where the physical property of time doesn't exist anymore. And, and Einstein's theory of relativity will ultimately come to its conclusion, they're outside of, of time. Well, if that's the case, then it could be that all of this argument over what happens first is all just coming from an earthly perspective and it becomes meaningless when you get to heaven. In other words, if I die today, that's earth time. And I'm not prophesying that, but it'd be fine with me. But that's earth time. Now, if I go to heaven and I pass into eternity, I've left that time-space continuum, right? If so, you guys might all be there when I get there. We may all get there together from heaven's perspective because we're leaving time into eternity, which would make all this discussion meaningless. And from an earth's perspective, the re resurrection could be some later date. But from our experience, once we leave time, it's already happened. I like that thought. It may seem a little too Missler-esque for some of you. But, um, 
I love the idea that when we get to heaven, we're all there. We don't have to wait for anybody or anything. And so that's another possibility. But don't miss the point. Whatever view you take on this, he is saying, those of your loved ones who have died aren't missing a thing. And it gives us another reason to look forward to the fact that we will either through death or through rapture, this is going to happen to us and we're all going to meet up together and we'll all be there. And so our mourning is very earthly, it's very temporary, it's very selfish. But we don't mourn one bit for people who have gone to be with the Lord because, hey, yeah, you, you feel sorry for yourself, but it's not mourning like people without hope because you're mourning for somebody who beat you. If, if you cry for somebody who's already gone to be with the Lord, it's so selfish because it's really out of jealousy that we do that. And when I, you know, I find more and more when I sit down and talk with somebody who says, well, the doctors have just given me a couple months to live. I, instead of thinking, oh no, I think you're lucky. You're, you're so blessed. It's nice for you to know that, that you're going to be seeing Jesus pretty soon. We should all live with that expectation. But hey, we're here in our flesh, and it's hard to think that way. And, and it, it really is, but that's reality. And so Paul is laying these events out so that they would understand, you know what, people who know Jesus, it's not a loss for them when they go to heaven. We're all going to meet up together. So when does this event occur? When does the rapture happen? Now, I'm not going to go into a big, long dissertation on it. We talk about it whenever it comes up in Scripture. But there are different views concerning the rapture and when it occurs, despite the fact that the Bible always tells us, quit worrying about the time. But there are most people who believe in a rapture, and there are a lot of Christians who don't believe in a rapture at all. They can look at this and the other passages and just sort of explain them away. Um, and they're still good people, and I'm not going to fault them at all. But of people who believe that a day is going to come when the Lord's going to descend and catch us up, which is called the rapture of people who believe in that, some believe that it will happen before the great tribulation, which to them either a pre-tribulation rapture, which means it happens, then a period of seven years of judgment, then Christ returns to the earth with us to rule and reign. Um, there are other people who believe that the rapture will happen somewhere around the middle of the tribulation, that the first half of the tribulation is more or less natural disasters. The second half is when God really pours out his wrath. And so uh, they would say they are pre-wrath or mid-tribulation, and they would hold to that position. There are others who believe that the rapture will happen at the end of the tribulation, that the earth will go through all this time, God will pull up his believers and immediately return to earth. And there are good Bible-believing Christians who hold to all those positions, as well as amillennial and preterist and other positions that fall outside the realm of what we call premillennialism. So I'm not bagging on anybody, and I would say that there are reasons to believe in any of those positions, but I'm not going to apologize for the way I see it. And to me, it all hinges 
to a great degree on whether or not the return of Christ is imminent. Could it happen at any time? And you cannot read this passage, I don't think, without getting the distinct impression that that's the case. You can't read Paul in Titus 2 talking about looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ without believing in, in, in the imminent return. In fact, the whole issue that they had here came about because of their understanding of an imminent return, as did Second Peter 3 when he's talking about people counting God slack concerning his promise, there's very little argument that the early church believed in eminency. Jesus said, I'm leaving, I'm coming back. Obviously, they believed that he could come back at any time. So the question really is, were they right or were they wrong? And ultimately, to believe in, in, in the imminent return of Christ you kind of have to believe that that's the next thing that's going to happen in the prophetic landscape. And therefore, that's going to put you in a position of being pre-tribulational. And so that's one of the primary reasons. I have other reasons. Um, The purpose of the tribulation is to judge and to deal with Israel. In the book of Revelation, all during the tribulation, you don't see a sign of the church being anywhere, and yet they are addressed in the beginning before he said after these things. There are a lot of reasons. Now, I don't, and we'll see as we come to chapter 5, he talks about this some more, and in 2 Thessalonians he talks about it some more. I'm not one of these people that's, that believes in a pre-tribulation rapture because I'm scared to death to go through the tribulation. If I'm wrong about this, I'm not worried. I'm fine. I would, I'd be totally okay going into the tribulation. Now you go, really, seven years of, no, I, I wouldn't last seven years, I guarantee you that. You know? <laughs> Nobody's going to be cutting my head off. Nobody's going to be, no, I will go down shooting. And so for me, I, I'm quite serious. It's a question of whether I get raptured right before the tribulation or whether I get raptured shortly after it begins. But it'll be taken care of. I, I don't think we should hold to a view because we are escapist. Or we're like, oh no, because I can't stand facing the tribulation. Because we have brothers and sisters who are facing all sorts of tribulation all the time in other parts of the world and even in our part of the world. And so I don't think we should come from a standpoint of, I don't think God would ever do that to people he loves because he loves everyone. But I do believe that clearly he can come back at any time and... To me, that means a pre-tribulation rapture. If it was a mid-trib rapture, you just watch until Antichrist comes to power, and when he's about to set up his, himself as God in the abomination of desolation in the temple in Jerusalem, you know, here comes the rapture. Uh, you know, or if it's post-trib, that's the one I have the hardest time with, and it's probably the position that a lot of people hold to, but... but uh, why rapture somebody if you're coming instantly back? That I call it a ricochet rapture. It's like you get raptured and you're back. It, it just logically doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Now, people hold to post-tribulationism partly because of what Revelation 20 says about um, the resurrection. And it shows a resurrection that happens at the beginning of the millennium. 
But even at that point, there are already people who are sitting on thrones ready to rule and reign with Christ before that resurrection happens. And so, again, yes, there's a resurrection that happens at the beginning of the millennium, but that's not the only resurrection. And operating under that assumption is going to lead you to all sorts of aberrant conclusions. So for me, the, I look at it and go, sure looks like eminency. Therefore, sure looks like pre-tribulationism. And really, for me, if Paul was going to tell Titus to look for the blessed hope, why would you do that? You'd be looking for the Antichrist if you don't believe that the next thing to happen is the rapture. So I like looking for Jesus. I like waiting for him. And I really do believe that he could come at any time. But if he doesn't come, I'm, I'm not going to be bummed. I, I was kind of, you know, because you see Israel becoming a nation, cool things happening in the world, the supernatural deliverance of Israel when everybody's trying to destroy him. And so you start counting the days and you start thinking it could be any time. However, I need to have the heart of my father that doesn't want anyone to perish. And so I go, yeah, man, I want to see Jesus return. But at the same time, I know some people right now who don't know him and will be doomed to hell if he came back this morning. So if he wants to draw them to himself and therefore he's going to forestall the rapture, I'm good with that. He's doing it for the right reasons and he has... He has all of the wisdom that there is at his disposal, obviously. So from all of this, and he winds it up by saying, therefore comfort one another with these words. This truth is something that should, we need to understand it. He doesn't want us to be ignorant. The fact is that everyone who knows Jesus Christ is going to be with him forever that if people are still here on the earth at the time that Jesus comes and snatches them away, be cool to be a part of that, but everybody who died before already won. They got a head start. They got there first. So we don't need to feel bad for them missing it, or we don't need to feel like, I'm going to be so bummed if I die and miss the rapture. You won't miss the rapture. And ultimately, the bottom line is, as his children, we are all going to be together with him forever. And that ought to give us great comfort. And Paul doesn't just say, I am comforting you. He says, comfort one another with these words. And therefore, in these truths come that which each of us can take and share with others at their times of loss, at their times of mourning, and remind them of what God says. And remind them of what's going to happen. And remind them of where their loved ones are. And that should give us enough comfort that though we mourn, we don't mourn the same as those who have no hope. Now, if you get into this stuff and all you do is have fights with it, and all you do is like, oh good, my friend's post-trib, I can't wait to go nail him with this thing about imminency, you've missed the point. This is all about comfort. It's all about being with Jesus. And that's something about which we can all agree our hope is 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 completely put in the fact that Jesus says, I'm coming again, you're going to be with me, and that when that day comes, he's going to gather all the pre-tribbers, mid-tribbers, post-tribbers, all-millennial, post-millennial, preterists, who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, and he goes, now you guys are all together. Too bad you couldn't handle it on earth, but now you're all together, and I'm wrapping it all up, 
and I'm on the throne, and I took care of you. And that is the point. And that's what Paul wanted to make sure that he communicated for them. Here is something you can use to provide comfort to others. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for the fact that we know that you will come back and that either you will come for us when we die, you'll come for us if we don't die, but we'll all be together with you forever. And that provides great comfort to us. And we thank you for the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.